Welcome to the Contemplative Science Podcast, brought to you by Monash University. This is the podcast for anyone interested in what lives on the overlap of cutting-edge science and ancient spiritual practices. From monks to neuroscientists, our expert guests join Dr. Mark Miller and Jamie Slevin to explain how contemplative practices work, and crucially, how they can help us improve our lives. Join us each week for Ancient Wisdom Made Practical. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Contemplative Science Podcast. My name is Jamie, and as always, I'm here with co-host Dr. Mark Miller. Mark, how are you, mate? I'm doing very well, James. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad. I'm looking forward to today because we are lucky enough to be welcoming Dr. Richard Chambers onto the podcast. Richard is an adjunct associate professor in the Centre for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies at our very own Monash University, as well as the co-founder of Udelix, which provides psychedelic-assisted leadership programmes in legal settings. He's done a bunch else, like developing two award-winning mindfulness courses, completed by over half a million people worldwide, and a whole bunch else we might get into. But before that, Richard, how are you, mate? Yeah, really good, thanks. Really great to be here with you guys. I love that we're we're doing this from three different continents, three different distinct parts of the world. It's fantastic. I know. Technology is amazing, hey? I feel like a little bit of a muggle because I'm always so shocked by technology. Like, almost every day, I think, like, oh, my goodness. Guys, where are you right now, Richard? I'm in Ubud, Bali. Yeah, and I'm in Toronto, Ontario. Yeah, well, I'm in grey East London, so I'm jealous <laughs> <Yeah>. of that. <laughs> awesome. So, Richard, I want to get into the role psychedelics have played historically in contemplative traditions. But as a way of introduction, whenever we discuss psychedelics, I always find this subtle premise that sneaks in. And that premise is something like this. The experiences we have on psychedelics reveal something about us as human beings, and perhaps more speculatively, something about, and now choose your word, the universe, spirituality, God, like, take your pick. So bag one, kind of uncontroversial, reveals something about us. More controversial, something a little bit more out there. What for you is the core appeal of researching the effect of psychedelics? Well, as we know from this renaissance that's taking place, psychedelics has a profound effect on all kinds of things. I mean, most of the research is around mental health, things like PTSD and treatment-resistant depression, but it's showing promise for all kinds of different psychological problems. So there's obviously some promise there for, you know, for improving the mental health of people who need it. I'm particularly interested through my work with Udelix on its role in personal development and, in fact, leadership development. People have been using psychedelics for a long time, you know, in Silicon Valley, whether it's microdosing, going to Burning Man, et cetera, to, you know, to, to improve themselves in different ways. Uh, you know, perhaps it's envisioning the next big thing, you know, in, in increasing, you know, cognitive flexibility, neuroplasticity and being able to think more creatively whether it's being able to tap into their deeper values and to lead with more values-driven leadership. So there's a whole sort of raft of things that, that psychedelics potentially offer us, even within the realm of, of sort of the ego and personal development. And then, of course, as you touch on, there's potentially something much bigger that's happening as well. We've spoken a little bit off-air about how psychedelics have played a bigger role than many people realise in the formation of a number of the spiritual traditions we are familiar with. Why isn't that more widely acknowledged historically? I mean, there's been a suppression, let's say, of psychedelics. There's been a suppression over the last 50 years by the ideological war on drugs and the scheduling of psychedelics into the category of the same category as, as things like heroin and cocaine. And, but there's been a suppression over the longest spans of history as well. 
there are a couple of fantastic books that I want to plug for your listeners if they want to know more about the role of psychedelics in spiritual practices and, in fact, in, in, in both Western and Eastern thought. And those books are The Immortality Key by Brian Murarescu and Secret Drugs of Buddhism by Mike Crowley. Brian Murarescu's book, The Immortality Key, it's a wide-ranging exploration of the role of psychedelics in Western religion and, in fact, in Western thought. And it centers largely around a, I guess, a festival, a sort of a burning man of the ancient world that went for 2,000 consecutive years. That was a secret festival in ancient Greece in a place called Elysium. It was run by women, actually, and, and done in secret, like I said. So they were sort of dishing up a psychoactive brew called Kukion. This festival, or this, this mystery, so to speak, it was attended by people like Socrates, Plato, Pythagoras. I mean, half your trigonometry class from high school went to this. And I think it was Socrates, I, I might be getting this wrong, but I think it was Socrates who's quoted in the book as saying, these mysteries, this psychedelic sacrament and what happens there is so profound that the fate of human civilization more or less rests on its continuation. And it did continue for 2,000 years. And then it was suppressed by the Christian church. The idea that people could go and directly make contact with God and, you know, really access, you know, the highest possible states of consciousness became sort of unpalatable to the powers that be. And so it was suppressed. So there's been a long, long history of suppression. And there's also, of course, been, as Mike Crowley talks about in his book, Secret Drugs of Buddhism, there's also been a long history of use of psychedelics in Eastern religions as well. Soma, of course, is talked about almost ad nauseum in the ancient Vedic texts like the Rig Veda, which is the oldest written spiritual text. I think it's 5,000 years old. And so there's this, there's this Soma that later in Buddhism, in Tantric Buddhism, became Amritsa or Amrita, sorry. So there's this sort of mystery, whereas these days I know of one Buddhist Lama who apparently, who I won't name, but apparently is using psychoactive plants in their initiations and empowerments. But for the most part, it's been, I guess, stamped out and looked down upon. So the Christian church was suppressing it. Was there a role of psychedelics in developing Christianity itself, though? Well, that's what Brian Murescu actually claims in his book, that the early Christians may have been a cult of psychoactive users. It's a really well-researched book. I mean, it's not like he's sort of going out on any limbs. He spent 12 years researching it. He studied classics. He worked as an academic in classics, decided there was no future in that, went and worked as a lawyer for a number of years, but sort of in his spare time as a hobby, continued to study classics. And then he just quit his job, his, his, his legal job, and went and spent 12 years researching this book. He makes a pretty strong case that Perhaps certainly the Desert Fathers and some of the early, what we say, more experiential Christians, the Gnostic Christians and the Christians who were sort of doing Christian, early Christian contemplative practices may in fact have been using some kind of psychoactive plants. I mean, this guy paid to do spectrometer analysis of vessels in the ancient Jewish temples and found that there were trace elements of, of all kinds of plant medicines in there, all kinds of sort of substances mixed in with other things. And so it, it seems to have a pretty central place in, in early Western and Eastern thought. Why? What were they getting from using them that made them central? It's a great question. Yeah, it's a really interesting question, isn't it? Why would that be so widely used? It's shrouded in mystery. 
no one knows for sure. There are hypotheses, there are speculations. I mean, my intuitive sense is that they provide us access to something that is so far beyond our ordinary world that it perhaps gives us a big picture view of perhaps what's possible in terms of human potential or even insights into the nature of human consciousness and what it is ultimately to be human. And so perhaps it's, it's just a very powerful tool. I mean, certainly people talk about that, you know, even today using it as a very powerful tool, not just for improving health and well-being, but also for insights into, into the nature of consciousness. Richard, are you involved in the science here as well? Like, are you in touch with the research about sort of what's happening at the, perhaps even at the brain level or nervous system level when we're taking psychedelics that might have this sort of bang on effect? of opening the gates of perception. Are you in touch with that research? Because it would be great to hear a little bit about, like, what do we know today from our science about why this might be as useful as you say it is? Yeah, well, I am. I'm, I'm, I'm heavily involved in research, actually, both through some work at Monash University with one of the labs there and also through Udelics, my psychedelic retreat company, where one of our founders is a postdoctoral researcher in both mindfulness and psychedelics. And so we're actively doing quite a lot of research. When it comes to you know, psychedelics and neuroimaging, psychedelics and brain activity, there's very little that we know at the moment. I'm collaborating on a project with Adil Razi at Monash University and Devon Stolica. It's called PsychConnect. So we're getting normal population of people, so non-clinical population, giving them a moderately a moderate to high dose of psilocybin and then putting them in an EEG and then in MRI and, and, and just tracking them while they listen to music and, and allow their brain to rest. We haven't analyzed any data yet. There's nothing I can there's certainly nothing I can share with you unfortunately, because it, it really is in the early days. And then there, of course, is a whole lot of clinical research. At the moment, the research we're doing in Udelics is cross-sectional. So we're looking at the association between lifetime use of psychedelics and a range of positive outcomes like healthy behaviours, as well as a range of potentially adverse consequences, some of the risk factors, epilepsy, seizures, things like that. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm very attracted to this approach that maybe what psychedelics might be doing, at least psychedelics like psilocybin, is they might be heating the brain up, adding some volatility, some uncertainty into the system. And that's really valuable, especially since things like depression or anxiety are really certain subsets. Like you are certain that the world isn't working. You're certain that the world is dangerous. And so it can be really valuable to sort of heat those habit styles of thinking up they become more malleable again. They become more fluid. And I love that, like thinking about pathology as a kind of rigidity. I think that's yes. probably right. And that health has something to do with fluidity. And uh, I don't know, just thinking along those lines, like thinking about psilocybin as increasing entropy or uncertainty in the brain. I don't know. I've, I heard it when you said maybe Socrates hung out at these mysteries. Because Socrates is sort of widely known as the philosopher who really kept trying to generate more uncertainty in people, right? He'd say, well, why yeah. are you going to work? Tell me about that. And why do you think money's important? Tell me about that. That's the same thing as I think the psilocybin is sort of doing in a way. You're increasing uncertainty. Why? Because it's the fact that you have too much certainty that's blinding you yes. from all of the other ways you could be. And if you could just get a little bit more uncertainty into the system, you just might bump out of that and into the neighboring, into a neighboring pocket that might be much better for you. So I love that. There's like a kind of value of uncertainty and maybe, maybe psychedelics are playing a role there. 
I think it's a fantastic point. I mean, some of the most interesting theories for me are around the neuroplasticity that psychedelics engender. I mean, it just makes the brain extremely plastic and open to new ways of thinking and acting for a period of time. There's a window, a few weeks after a big dose of any psychedelic. And then also the idea that it might be just suspending the higher order brain processing so that those belief systems that, as you point out, Mark, sort of constrain us, you know, we're obviously bombarded with so much sensory stimulation that we can't process everything that's coming in. So the brain just starts to take shortcuts and just apply heuristics and apply sort of fixed frameworks to things. We make assumptions, we start to ignore large amounts of information that are coming at us. And psychedelics suspend the belief systems that help us to do that. So we do get flooded during high-dose psychedelic experiences. We do get very flooded and bombarded with all kinds of sensory and mental and emotional experiences. And that's potentially actually a really good thing because it just shakes up the snow dome. I forget whose metaphor it is. It might actually be Robin Carhart-Harris's metaphor of snow falling on a mountain. You know, you've got the tracks that everyone's been skiing down. There are neural pathways and our belief systems and our habits and then all of a sudden there's this big dump of fresh snow and when you're at the top of that mountain with you know <laughs> a whole bunch of fresh snow that's fallen then anything's possible you can ski any way that you like and start to lay down new tracks and that's potentially again what's happening so when you say shake up the snow dome that makes me nervous what are the drawbacks <laughs> of shaking up the snow dome the potential drawbacks of course of shaking up the snow dome is that anything becomes possible and of course we know that psychedelics are a non-specific amplifier, for instance. It's not that they inherently lead people to being more ethical, more connected with nature, more connected with themselves. I mean, there are few, but, but quite poignant examples of far right-wing groups using certain psychedelics as part of their indoctrination rituals, I guess, hazing rituals to help people to think more alike with them. I mean, it really depends on how it's used. It's a non-specific amplifier, which again, of course, you know, that, that, that speaks to the value of set and setting, you know, doing it in the right setting and doing it with the right mindset and also the right intention. And so certainly what we're doing at Udelics with our leadership programs is we're creating a container. It's an eight-week course. So it's four weeks of mindfulness-based preparation training. Well, first of all, it's a psych and medical screen to make sure that no one's getting into the program that isn't going to benefit from it. Then it's four weeks of fairly intensive training in mindfulness to prepare them for psychedelic experiences. Then it's a five-day retreat in the Netherlands, actually, at the moment. And that's psilocybin truffles are legal there, but not that the mushrooms that grow above the ground, go figure. And there are two ceremonies facilitated by trained psychedelic therapists. And then there's four weeks of integration training. And so we create a, a container to ensure that anybody who's doing that program is hopefully setting a clear intention, doing it in an ethical way, that they're safe, that they're part of a community of people who are doing it sort of for similar reasons, that they're then you know spending time in nature, connecting with one another, connecting with themselves. And so when it's done in a comprehensive container like that, it maximizes the likelihood that people are going to get benefits from that, you know, expand and grow and hopefully become more ethical and more impactful in, in, in their leadership. I mean, anything can happen, let's be honest. If someone just goes and takes psychedelics recreationally, anything can happen. You know, we shake up that snow dome and all sorts of things can happen. Mental health problems can emerge, challenging experiences can emerge, which, which can lead to mental health problems. 
people can get more and more entrenched in their stiff ideas, whether it's far right-wing ideologies or narcissism or, you know, just erroneous beliefs. And of course, you know, with all that neuroplasticity and the profundity of the experience, we know that sometimes people do hold on very rigidly to very wrong and very maladaptive ideas coming out of psychedelic experiences. Yeah. Wow. So you've got this, you've got this increase, potentially you've got this increase in uncertainty, valuable, pushes you into insight, brings down boundaries, opens up the vista. But the other half of that story has to be now that you're in the wide open, where do you settle again? Like when the system cools back down, what shape does it cool back down into? I love that so far the story we've been telling, maybe it's not exactly like this, but I like the story that these things were all of the examples you gave of where this is being used really effectively to help humans. They were part of a tradition. They were part of a long chain where you have elders and you have a community and you have teachings and these things are being used within that container. And that makes a lot of sense to me so that you're already on a path that's going to hopefully lead to a a sort of better human life. And then psychedelics are being used as whatever they are, as little engines or little operators along the way. If you take away the path and you just create a bunch of uncertainty, you're sort of shuffling the deck. Who knows what the shuffle is going to come out to? And I know you say there are some like inherently good things that come. And I think that's definitely anecdotally what I've heard from people that I know that are in this scene. But uh, again, if it is just increased entropy, then if you have sort of parasitic ideologies, they can use that entropy, right? They can say, look, you didn't know, but now I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you how it is. It's like this. And then maybe the system cools back down into a shape that's, that's not so valuable. So I love to hear that you have a training program where people literally come and train themselves to prepare, and then they use it as a hi-hat, and then they cool out of it. I mean, that sounds, that sounds right to me. Yeah, it is. It's, it's very important. And as you, as you point out, Mark, I mean, traditionally, psychedelics and plant medicines have been used in very well-defined containers, And so we need to be recreating that. And that's what all of the skillful psychedelic therapists and researchers and practitioners are doing. They're making sure that that container is one that's going to produce, you know, beneficial outcomes for people. And of course, you know, we want to be really careful during the process as well, during the psychedelic ceremonies to be non-interventive really. And that's the art of psychedelic therapy is to be present and to help to steer that journey, but also to not influence it in a way that perhaps gets in the way of the natural unfolding of the psychedelic process, which left to its own devices in a safe container with the right set and setting is generally benevolent and beneficial. I mean, mostly if if, if we just let it ride and people don't resist the the psychedelic process, that's, that's where we bump into problems when people are anxious or afraid of and then resist what's coming up, what's happening, that's usually when people start to develop what's called anxious ego dissolution as opposed to the more positive states of of ego dissolution. Not that ego dissolution, of course, is the only useful thing that happens in psychedelics, but my point is that if if, if we resist it or if it's steered in in, in a direction that's perhaps, you know, not where it needs to go, then that can actually get in the way of it doing its magic. It's not unique to psychedelics here either. We see the same thing, I think, in the meditation community today as well. So you have people doing deep, fast, high practices without having the proper base and without being set in a particular tradition. And they're having anxious ego dissolution experiences because they haven't cultivated a strong enough sense of love and kindness. They haven't developed a strong enough sense of faith. 
They're not in a place where they can feel safe to let go. And yet there are supercharging attentional programs that challenge who they think they are. And you might think that over time that'll be valuable if they can swing back to center. But I think it's I think it's a bit reckless actually to do that without having the kinds of stability making practices and traditions in play, then just sort of pumping inside seems a bit precarious under in most circumstances. So I just mean to say it's not it's not like this is only happening in psychedelics. We're seeing this a lot in in various kinds of spiritual developmental programs, I think. That's a great point. And there are, as you said, strong parallels. I've been practicing mindfulness meditation for 23 years and, and using plant medicines for slightly longer than that. And I've been teaching mindfulness for almost 20 years and I'm, I'm, I'm familiar. It's, it's very much, it's very similar. In fact, what I've learned through being a, a meditation teacher over the last couple of decades is actually helping me a lot as I become a psychedelic facilitator as well. It's interesting, right? So there's this quote that I like. Some think that the burning bush that allowed Moses to hear God's voice was actually an indigenous plant that contains DMT. Dr. Rick Straussman, in his book DMT, The Spiritual Molecule, theorized that DMT is actually the gateway through which our souls enter and leave our bodies, as we can observe a large release of DMT in the brain during times of birth, death, and when the embryo is seven weeks old, which is when it starts differentiating into male or female. DMT pops up all the time. Near-death experiences, DMT childbirth DMT. Is there any spiritual significance in your view to DMT as a chemical? Well, look, there seems to be. I mean, if you look at the scriptures, I mean, there is certainly something that, you know, whether that's true or not, whether the burning bush was in fact a burning bush of DMT, whether that's a metaphor for something else. I mean, I, it's very hard to know, isn't it? It's very hard to know. But there's certainly something in the experience of using DMT that it really does take us so far beyond the normal grounded human experience. A metaphor that I like to use for psychedelics and also for meditation, which I think go together beautifully, by the way. I mean, I, I wrote a paper I published at the start of last year with Paul Ignatsky from Monash University and another friend of mine, Jake Payne. These bi-directional synergies between mindfulness, meditation and psychedelics are pretty obvious. But the metaphor that I really like is elevated to the penthouse Right. I mean, psychedelics in a way, and particularly something like DMT, it's literally like taking the elevator up to the penthouse and the doors open and we get this profound view that goes so far beyond anything that we could ever have imagined, anything we've experienced up to that point. You know, this, this sense of just limitless consciousness. I mean, it's, it's, it's ineffable, basically, but you can imagine if this huge view and for a time, we get to enjoy that. And then the doors close and the elevator takes us down into the basement. And a lot of people, you know, keep taking that elevator. And of course, once we've seen that, we're fundamentally different in some ways because you can never unsee it. And there's a different perspective and a different awareness of, of what is actually potentially happening beyond our limiting beliefs and, and, and perceptual filters but it's then really important after a while to realize that, oh, hang on a sec, there's a stairwell here. And that's the meditation practice. And to take those stairs and, and, and what we argued in our paper, we actually used a different metaphor. So I'm mixing metaphors here of the compass and the vehicle. But it's the same thing. One shows us what's possible and the direction that we might head in. And that's the psychedelics. It's the compass pointing our way. And then the vehicle itself is, is meditation practice. Again, just to talk about that other book I mentioned, Mike Crowley's Secret Drugs of Buddhism. I mean, synopsis of the book is that 
in the ancient Hindu text, they talk about this plant medicine or this some kind of concoction, soma. And there's a lot of, you know, conjecture about what that might have been, whether it was one thing, whether it was a whole bunch of different things over time. But there was definitely a psychedelic sacrament that was being used in different Hindu rituals, fire ritual, etc. And then over time, that became a placebo. I mean, it's still used in certain Hindu rituals, but these days it's water with, you know, flower petals floating in it and it's certainly not doing anything psychoactively. And then Hinduism was actually rebranded into Buddhism. And that's really interesting. This, this, this Mike Crowley is a, a Buddhist lama as well as a, a friend of Anne Shulgin's and, you know, a, a psychedelic aficionado. And he makes a very compelling case that Hinduism was in some sense rebranded. And, and, and we know that a lot of the, ta- particularly the tantric practices in Buddhism, share common ancestry with some of the Advaitic and tantric Hindu practices, the iconography. I mean, Avalokiteshvara is actually potentially Ishvara, which is another name for Shiva. When I used to do the Yidam practice, one of my favorite practices was loving eyes or, or Chenresic practice, the Buddha of compassion. And there was always, and, and part of the visualization is there's a deer skin draped over his left shoulder. And then that signifies that he possesses the kindness of a deer and will never harm anyone. And I always used to think, that's weird. Why would you have a skinned animal? And of course, you, you dig far enough, and, and, and Shiva had a, a bow and arrow and used to hunt deer. And so that's potentially, you know, where, where some of that iconography has come from. So there's this continuation anyway. And then Amrita in, in Buddhist, I've drank Amrita in Buddhist empowerments and initiations. And again, it's water with sort of grains of rice or flowers floating and it doesn't do anything. But um, Mike Crowley makes the point that potentially that was a sacrament that was, that was central to empowerments. Potentially people would drink with a lama, meditate, get profound access to one of these practices and then continue that practice again, taking the stairs and, and heading in the direction of, you know, in this case, cultivating compassion and wisdom. So the psychedelic turns out to be part of the pith instruction, as they say, where you That's sit correct. with the teacher and they point out the way and then it's your job to practice to, to that point going forward. Hmm. The question then emerges, if someone is to want to sort of dip into the world of taking psychedelics, under what conditions and for what outcome do you suggest they do so? <laughs> well, first of all, I, I guess I don't want to condone illegal use of psychedelics. Unfortunately, we are still under the influence of a 50-year ideological war on plants, as crazy as that is. And it does seem to be thawing, and there are some, you know, some great examples of places around the world where that's being relaxed and, and loosened, driven in no small part by the renaissance of psychological or sort of psychedelic research. But of course, you know, I acknowledge that people are all over the world using psychedelics for recreational purposes, for personal development, for their own healing, you know, outside of outside of clinical trials and clinical settings. So there are a few basic principles. I mean, if anyone wants to jump on Udelics, E-U-D-E-L-I-C-S.com on our website, they'll find a guide that I wrote for using psychedelics safely. You want to prepare yourself. You want to be in the right, what's called set and setting. So the right set means to be in the right mindset. I would strongly recommend doing some meditation at least before ingesting any psychedelics and ideally for a number of weeks beforehand. 
I would recommend mindfulness meditation. That's what the, the research seems to be mainly in support of these days. And, you know, the ability to stay present and non-reactive, no matter what's coming up, is a fantastic tool, particularly if anyone wants to take, you know, moderate to high doses of psychedelics, because all sorts of stuff can come up. And what we know, as I said before, is sometimes it's quite challenging. Sometimes emotions that we weren't aware of or traumas that have been suppressed start to come up and they come up to be healed. And if we can stay present with the emotional intensity, if we can be with what's happening without resisting it, then in, in, in a sense, that's able to move. It's able to sort of be processed. And we come out the other side of that, even though, even though it might have been quite an arduous and challenging experience having processed some of that. And then the setting is also really important. So that might include being out in nature. I think it augments the experience. It's a, it's a very powerful thing. And of course, we then connect more deeply with nature, feel our interconnectedness with the natural world. That's really good for our own psycho-spiritual health. It's also really good for the environment, for the climate, as we start to feel that interconnectedness. I mean, you know, people do it at music festivals and all kinds of things like that. I generally would recommend not doing that, particularly if it's a new experience. Do it in the countryside or somewhere or in the park, at least, with a trusted friend, someone who has experienced psychedelics before, and they'd want to be either microdosing or not using it at all so that they can be a, a sitter for you. So if anything negative is coming up, anything unpleasant, they can help to at least bring presence, keep you safe, ideally kind of guide you through it. And then out the other side of that, it's it's time for integration because, you know, if, if, if we just take psychedelics and then go back to work on Monday, we've had a peak experience, but, you know, is that actually going to create any lasting, meaningful change for us? Well, probably not. I mean, we don't have solid research on this yet, but intuitively it would probably seem that that's not going to happen. Like if someone goes and does a 10-day meditation retreat or a seven-day meditation retreat and then they come back and they stop meditating or if they go and do, you know, a, a fitness you know, retreat in some tropical island and drink smoothies every day and do yoga and then they come home and just go back to work and eating chips on the couch. So it's really important to integrate. There are so many different practices that, that I recommend and Eudelics that we recommend. A daily meditation practice is really powerful. Journaling is really powerful spending time in nature, spending time with people who you can be authentic and real with. So there are a range of things that can help us to integrate and take those insights and shifts forward. There's more. So download that cheat sheet, if you like, from, the, from our website, if you're interested. But that's a pretty good snapshot of, of, of how you might do it safely. Or go and do it with a, you know, with someone who knows what they're doing in a retreat setting somewhere. There are retreat centers popping up all over the world. There are programs that are being offered that it might also be a, a, a really useful way to do it. But it just shows, right, with any powerful experience, there's potential to use it in whatever way you like. And that's why the work you're doing is so interesting and so important, because there otherwise aren't necessarily guardrails. And if you have a very big, powerful tool, some guidelines tend to be helpful. <laughs> Usually, right? I mean, anything that's taboo and suppressed in our society, whether it's sexuality or psychedelics, you know, it has great potential for personal growth and development, great potential for harm. And therefore, you know, the more that we find ways of encouraging people to use those things in safe containers, I think the better their sort of contribution to humanity is going to be. Richard, where can everybody find you online? So there are two places. They could, they could Google drrichardchambers.com, drrichardchambers.com, or Udelix, which is E-U-D-E-L-I-C-S.com. 
Eudelic's the EU prefix. If you think of euphoria and euthymia, it means wellness. And the delics part of psychedelics means manifesting. So it's wellness manifesting, E-U-D-E-L-I-C-S. So that'd be two places people could find me. Richard, man, thanks so much for coming on and walking us through that. It's such a pleasure to chat to someone with an expertise in this area because it's such a fascinating area and it's all a little bit the Wild West without your kind of work. It's definitely fascinating. And thanks for the questions. And it's also nice to talk to people who also have what's obviously a deep meditative and spiritual practice and just to be able to sort of meld minds for a period of time. So thanks for having me on. Brilliant. Well, that was the Contemplative Science Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that half as much as I did. And as always, we'll see you next week. So thank you for listening to the Contemplative Science Podcast. We're available on the podcast app of your choice, as well as on YouTube as a video podcast. If you're interested in exploring the rich landscape between science and contemplative practices, check out Monash University's Centre for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies. 